Welcome to Pandemics and the Liberal Arts, a podcast from the faculty of Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Chris Garretts, one of your hosts, joined by... Um, I'm Amy Poppinga, also from the History Department at Bethel University. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, Joel Fredrickson from the Psychology Department. Now I'm also Associate Dean for Assessment and Accreditation. Two of those more sexy topics really in higher ed, both Assessment and accreditation are. We're pretty excited to see how having somebody who represents assessment will really just help boost our numbers because we know that that's really hot in the world of podcasts. Yes, yes, yeah. It's, it's also the first time anyone has used the adjective sexy on this podcast, so <laughs> it's, yes, it's um, just kind of clickbait at this point. Right, and I'm going to argue it should be the last time. <laughs> yep. So uh, in the first two episodes of this series, we talked about history and philosophy and help, how they uh, help us understand and maybe even cope with COVID-19 or other pandemics. And it felt like it was time to move beyond the humanities and start talking about how the sciences fit into this. And psychology seemed like a good first step. And so we're going to talk about the psychology of a pandemic and why psychology is so important right now. But Joel, at least some of our listeners are maybe prospective Bethel students, high school students who might have had a psych class at some point, but maybe have not. So first of all, can you just explain what the discipline of psychology is? Yeah, I, I one of my favorite uh, definitions for psychology is um, a scientific study of how humans think, behave, and emote, in essence, uh, the emotion, the cognition, and behavior of humans. And so that would mean, I mean, certainly plenty of psychologists study animals as well. And usually the idea is, how does that relate to human behavior? What does that tell us about human behavior? I think that would be kind of one of the distinctions maybe between um, a biologist necessarily doing that animal research and maybe psychologists doing that, that animal research. So pretty broad definition, but a key aspect of that um, that we really emphasize today is that that scientific aspect of how it is that we're getting our information um, related to, to those three things. And of course, it's a liberal art. So, um, you know, philosophy, history, a lot of places talk about human cognition, how we think about things, how, how we behave, um, our different emotions about things. And so, um, you see that I, that's a lot of what I'll pull into my classes from from these other disciplines as well. And I think kind of the key defining aspect is that us gathering that information through the scientific process. So maybe Joel, could you give us an example of what's what what is scientific about psychology? Maybe especially in in one of your fields, like social psychology or educational psychology. What do, for example, what does an experiment look like, or what kind of data do you gather? Yeah, yeah, um, and. More often in social psychology, it'll try to use the experimental design, you know, so, and, and you're hearing Fauci talk about that a lot right now, right, um, in terms of the gold standard. Um, and it's the same thing within psychology, okay, randomized controlled designs. So we have, we you know, we randomly assign people into an experimental condition. We have control, maybe one or more control conditions. Sometimes those are placebo-like control types of of conditions. Sometimes they're what we call empty controls. People just aren't getting anything, you know. Um, uh, but that, that in essence, is really the gold standard for us when we think in terms of the science of it. Um, now, there's plenty of other areas to where it just isn't, wouldn't be ethical for us to run randomized controlled experiments. And so we're getting um, correlational types of 
of data or doing kind of predictive analysis based off of what it is that we see uh, these different variables that that relate with one another. And so uh, that's one of the main things actually right away in an intro to psych class that I'll talk with students is, is that, you know, what are the types of statements that you can make based on the data that was that was um, provided. And, you know, the biggest problems are correlational data, people end up misinterpreting that, you know, and so they, they try to make causal statements when um, really it was, you know, it, it could have been a directionality issue. Maybe it's the other way, you know, it's it, is it violent video games causes um, aggressive behavior? Maybe kids who are really aggressive like to play violent video games, those, those types of things um, that we talked talk through um, within that class to kind of set the set the context for everything else that we're discussing in those classes. Um, Joel, can you talk to us a little bit about how COVID might be showing up in classes like Intro to Psych right now, or how people in your department and conversations you've had are sort of bringing in our current context into what they're teaching? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, it's a mix for, for me. I mean, one of the things coming up in, in the class and I'm going to emphasize with students is um, some of the research, actually, it's a research from um, the Common Cold Project is what it's called out of Carnegie Mellon. And what basic in that study there, they are, it's experimental in terms of they are putting um, a virus, a cold virus, actually a coronavirus in people's noses and seeing who actually contracts the, uh, gets a cold from it. And everybody doesn't automatically get a cold from it. And what are those predictive aspects? Um, I think that's a really, it's a really interesting area um, because we think of it in terms of such simple biological determination. Oh, you were exposed to a virus, so you will get it. And the research from that is saying, no, it's it's combined with um, your brain, what's going on in your life, how much stress do you feel within your life, how protect you know the resilience factors and the other you know so how much social support do you have will give you your immune system this resilience related to it um, versus uh, you know other you know the other major stressors that are going on within within a person's life. So I think. It, it's it's really interesting. I, I was recently reading our, uh, I belong to um, the Association for Psychological Science and our current president, Lisa Feldman Barrett, um, was was recently just kind of writing to that, writing about that with, with all of us. And I found um, it, it's, it's so true. We look for these really simple causal aspects to where it isn't that simple. It's, it's, Certainly, it's being exposed to the virus, but it's the other. There are other things that are involved as well, um, uh, mind-body types of things that that are involved as well. That all combine together as to whether or not you're going to get a virus and how uh, how damaging uh, it can it can be to to the individual. So um, I look forward. I, I'll talk with that related to towards the end of the semester. We talk about health psychology um, and frankly, just kind of what makes a good life for an individual, what does the research say related to that? And, um, you know, I mean, for, for right now, I think for all of us, what's interesting is we know the research that social support is really important for that. Human touch is really important for that. But then when you've got shelter in place and you don't have that same social support, we're kind of probably making certain people more vulnerable to um, to the virus because they, they, they don't 
they don't have access to that same social support anymore. Do you think that students, um, as they learn these things, like the role of things like social support or and, and the impact that that has on things like resiliency, in your experience, um, are students encouraged by that because of the ways in which it might make, make us feel like we have a certain element of um, control or does it mm-hmm. make people nervous? <laughs> well, I, I think um, I, I find more of the students find, I, um, they, they're encouraged by it, I think. There's another, um, actually in the same unit, one of the things I have them do is, is watch this. It's a TED Talk basically about this, this longitudinal project out of Harvard that has followed um, these men for over 75 years. It's, a, it's um, the longest longitudinal project um, uh, uh, that has existed. And um, the, you know, the best predictor for people's happiness in life, you know, their success, you know, it happy to how they feel about themselves in their lives and, and how healthy they are, are the relationships that they have with other people and students, student in discussing that students just, you know, I, I emphasize to them sometimes, you know, we, we, um, kind of push you away, you know, professors can sometimes as well. It's like, you shouldn't be spending so much time with your friends and you should be working, doing these other kinds of things. But the investment in the friendships is really important. And the deep investment within the, the friendships to be able to have that social support where you can talk about, um, you have a few people that you can talk about some, some pretty, the things that would make you pretty vulnerable with them. Um, to be able to have those kinds of friendships is is real. Just what we know, it's really important for your psychological health, but it's also important for your physical health as well. And I find, on average, students find that um, they find that encouraging. That it's almost kind of like this permission. Yes, it's okay <laughs> to be investing all this time in in your friendships. Do we know if there is a difference between the impact of familial relationships as opposed to? friendships that are outside of you I mean like is there is there a difference in the research as it relates to sort of quote who is offering you that social support yeah the, the what I from what I've seen from the research at this point is that it, it doesn't matter as long as you're getting the social support um so so but imagine that to where let's say you've got a you've got a very strong friend network but let's say you're in a marriage with a lot of conflict you know, so you've got two competing things there, right? And you've got something that's causing a lot of stress within your life. And we certainly know that um, uh, a marriage in particular with a lot of conflict, particularly a marriage with a, where contempt is expressed, um, is really kind of harmful to our physical selves as well. It's harmful to our immune system, actually, if we're exposed to a lot of contempt from uh, from anybody, but particularly somebody who's close to us. And yet that other social support is really important. That, that can help to end up being a buffer, that friendship social support. As long as it's it's consistent, you can, you can rely on it, you know you have that, that social support, that can actually help to be a buffer against this other very maybe uh, a difficult distressing relationship that one that one would have. So, so the relationships can have a healthy offset on stressful. Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, that kind of, uh, that kind of leads into actually, it's an example of our next question. So if we can dig in even a little bit more, just sort of on, um, does psychology help us? Does it offer us tools to make meaning of what's going on right now? You as a trained psychologist, as you are 
living your life, but also um, ingesting news and information. Mm -hmm. Um, do, do you sort of recognize that the way you're processing information is because of your training? And then number two, how can it help the rest of us? Oh, in terms of how we're processing our, our well, our own information. I think that's the biggest, one of the bigger things is, you know, how are we talking to ourselves? You know, what kind of self-talk do we, do we provide for ourselves? One of the things, and actually I stumbled on this fairly recently, that's been probably most helpful for me. I, I grew I grew up with a lot of negative self-talk. I don't know necessarily where it all came from, you know, in terms, terms of that. Um, uh, but one of the things that's been most helpful for me that way in terms of kind of um, how, how we're seeing the world right now and other types of things is um, when I say something negative to myself, um, I, I, I'm doing another self talk, a meta self talk saying, uh, would you say that to one of your friends? If you wouldn't say that to one of your friends, don't say that to yourself. I, th I, I personally just found that to be really helpful advice. If I'm not going to say that to one of my, if I couldn't think of myself saying that to one of my friends, why am I beating myself up in that, um, in that same way? I think there, there are certain things like that in terms of, cause we, yeah, you know, we have more time to ourselves, so we probably have more time to, for that for that self talk, and we have less time um, having kind of these well our in person uh, interactions with other people. So it's a it's an easy time for us to start kind of develop our own you know not even conspiracy theories about coronavirus, which which those are easy to grab onto too. But conspiracy theory, well, I, I wonder if these people are even my friends anymore. I wonder what, you know, I wonder what other people are thinking about me. I haven't heard from somebody in so, you know, in, in this amount of time. Maybe I'm not even friends with anybody or maybe everybody's texting with each other and I'm being left out and they're talking about, you know, those kinds of things can happen really easily in an environment like this. This is kind of, it's kind of a toxic environment for, for that type, those types of things, particularly if you kind of, if you're prone to more of that kind of anxiety, social anxiety, particularly college student age is just prime for that, um, for, you know, because the, the relationships are important to all of us. I mean, we're, we're social animals, um, but particularly in that age group, it can be really easy for that to, um, to take place in, in a person's mind. So to be able to kind of kind of get yourself away from that a little bit, maybe do, a, you know, be careful in terms of the self-talk that we do, um, that we do for, with ourselves, I think is, is all an important aspect for how it is that we end up responding, I think. So, so is, Joel, is what I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry, just to pick up on that, Joel, a couple of days ago, Washington Post ran a piece um, warning that there is a brewing mental health crisis around COVID. And I think mm -hmm. mostly they talked about depression, substance abuse, uh, PTSD even suggested mm -hmm. some evidence of rising suicides. I mean, is that an overblown claim? Are you hearing, I mean, are there studies of that? Are you hearing evidence that, um, that uh, these conditions are being exacerbated by the kind of isolation well, it, it 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 makes sense that it would. Yeah, you know, frankly, I don't think that we have great data right now related to that to to actually know for sure. Um, for that, it certainly it it makes sense, particularly to those who are already vulnerable, right? Um, so if you're already biologically predisposed to depression, that doesn't always mean you're going to have depression. But now you throw yourself in this situation, you have stressors. Uh, maybe you're not working now. 
Um, you know, you've got all of these other kinds of things together, or you I mean, for all of us, just our normal patterns have been disrupted, which is really hard for us. You know, we, we, we love our families, but we, we like having the break from our families. We like going to work and, and our kids like our break from us too and, and everything else. So, um, it, it, it would make sense certainly that, that, um, um, that we would end up seeing a, higher mental um, a crisis in terms of mental health um, that's taking place. I, it's, uh, I know a number of, you know, a number of therapists are, are still quite busy. I mean, they're doing either Google Hangout or Zoom type of uh, sessions with people um, during this time. And people have, certainly have more time um, as well uh, to talk. So uh, the, 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 the PTS for frontline workers, I would agree, you know, a lot of what they go through, particularly if they're a frontline worker in New York City, um, definitely that's that's acute trauma. Uh, there and you can when you see the research on on dreams um, and the dreams that people are having, there those frontline workers are having more dreams like PTSD people would. Um, the rest of us are talking about how how many, you know, we're we're remembering our dreams more and our dreams are more vivid and all those other kinds of things. But how most people are describing it aren't necessarily trauma um, related. They're anxiety related, certainly, but maybe not uh, so much trauma related. So um, it, it, it only makes sense, right? Our, our, our structure has been disrupted. So many people have lost jobs. I, I particularly, you know, you worry for people who, who have their own businesses, you know, who, who can't get the unemployment or other other types of things. They, you know, there's a lot, uh, there's, there, wherever there's a lot of stress and anxiety and loss of income, yeah, you can expect um, some more mental health issues taking place, certainly. So Joel, is there a way in which, because you've just mentioned from the the sort of most um, extreme level of those who are frontline workers, who um, to those of us that, you know, for the most part, it's been more about dealing with that stress of isolation and um, being with family all of the time. <laughs> is there a role, something that you have educated me about quite a bit in our friendship is just cognitive behavioral therapy. And the fact that it seems like it's something we can all benefit from, whether mm -hmm. we have Sort of formal ex experience with it or not? Yeah. Well, I think I think some of those things I was talking about before, in terms of how it is that we talk about ourselves, that's a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. Will 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 focus on that kind of trying to retrain our our thinking, uh, particularly if we have um, persistent persistent um, pessimistic explanatory styles for things. This happened to me. Oh, it's because. Um, uh, not to go Stuart Smalley on it, but because we're not good enough and smart enough and all those other <laughs> other types of things. There's there's a grain of truth actually to to that aspect. So of of trying to retrain our our thinking of how it is that we we um, see various life life events, and, but but also you know the cognitive behavioral therapy would would emphasize those things. Make sure you do things that um, help you relax, that you enjoy doing. Keep doing those types of things. If you like going for a walk, get out in nature. Um, the research is pretty good regarding just spending time out in uh, nature, at least six feet away from other people um, and, uh, uh, and, and how that can kind of be, be soothing for 
for us as well. So I think, um, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think a lot of those things um, can uh, can fit right in with that, along with a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy is this kind of, you know, exposure therapy, particularly if there's a number of things that we're fearing to, you know, the research says, attack those fears, um, go after those, go after those, fears. expose yourself to those fears. Um, and it starts to, the anxiety starts to, to dissipate, but you have to, um, you have to meet them, you have to meet them head on. Um, so I, so I, I think all of those types of things could, can certainly help us most definitely during kind of work through this, this time that we're this crazy time that we're trying to deal with. So Joel, you mentioned Dr. Fauci earlier, and I mean, it strikes me we're in an odd moment where one of the most trusted public figures in America is a research scientist, right? Because mm -hmm. this is a society that has a fairly high degree, at least anecdotally, it seems of science denialism. It's not often that all Americans are convinced by scientific method and evidence. Does it seem like we're doing a good job of listening to scientists right now? Or are you seeing evidence that maybe there's a kind of a social psychology of Americans not wanting to listen to science right now? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, a unfortunately, it kind of looks like, and I'm just, you know, arm sharing this as well, you know, off of it, you know, what you read of different things. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a little frustrating that this is all political as well. You know, like, like not wearing a mask, is is a red state kind of thing to do or whatever um and uh that and, and it's not completely obviously it's not divided completely um uh in that way uh but i i think one of the more interesting things actually related to that is i think some uh older americans who are typically more conservative in that way are are kind of frustrated that no why aren't we listening to the scientists um, why aren't our leaders listening more to, to scientists? And that makes sense, right? They're they're far more vulnerable um, than than a lot of than a lot of younger people. Um, so so I I I don't think I think there's always going to be probably a strain who maybe are are a little anti science. I I don't know if it's as I don't know if it's quite as large as what people think. I mean, we I think a lot of people look. When, when people are really sick, they don't seem to be that anti-science. They're very much interested in, in um, going to a physician who understands the, uh, understands the science. So, um, so I, we, we might not be, you know, a lot of people might not be quite as anti-science as they, <laughs> as they necessarily think. Um, and that's why I, you know, I mean, I think Fauci, on top of the fact of he's just got um, he's just got a great way of presenting himself as well, presenting things too. Um, that's in just such stark contrast to other people who are presenting things. I think people are very, very hungry, uh, hungry for that. Um, and what seems to be completely apolitical is just no. This is what the data says um, that it is that we need to do. Okay, well, Joel, before we go, we always like to have our guests talk about something un-COVID related because it's not the only thing that you're interested in. It's not the only thing you're teaching or studying. What, what's something else that's giving you energy or joy right now, whether it's teaching, scholarship, writing, assessment, probably is very joy-inducing, um, or even just something in your personal life? What's something that you're finding interesting and energizing right now? Uh, uh, 
Uh, well, I, honestly, well, what's been energizing for me actually is because um, I have all this extra time is is just going for more walks, just going for more walks in nature, and that type of thing has been um, has been quite uh, energizing for me. Uh, being able to do some extra, I, which just sounds totally nerdy. I'm really not this nerdy, but doing some, being able to spend a little more time into certain data sets that I've had to kind of dig some dig some information out from them. And actually, well, in COVID related though, <laughs> one of the more interesting articles I've read, I've been reading way too much news, uh, was was actually, a it was a big data item. So it fits more into kind of the quant area that, I, that I'm interested in, but it was about um, the information that they were getting from Google searches and that these big data quant people were able to predict where the next, um, uh, explosion was going to end up taking place. And at that time, this was this was probably a good three weeks, three or weeks or a month ago, where they're saying, yeah, the next one's going to be in Ecuador. And people in Ecuador are saying, oh, no, no, there's no problem here. And all they were looking up was the searches in various languages of um, uh, why can't I smell? That was the best predictor. It was how many people search for that. And it paralleled perfectly with this is where the most, pro at that time, Italy had the highest problems. That was New York City. And then it was New Orleans and Detroit, uh, Chicago. It was paralleling perfectly that way. But at that time, Ecuador's was outrageous compared to, to everyone else. And it was a couple of weeks later to where they got um, they got hit hit very hard. I find that part interesting in terms of where the other ways in which we can find um, uh, find information outside of what is our, our typical kind of scientific way to, to be able to find information. Okay, well, Joel, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's been really helpful to hear a little bit more about the psychology of COVID, not just some of the um, um, kind of ways of understanding it, but even some therapeutic techniques we can all try to apply in our lives. <laughs> So listeners, thanks for joining us. Hopefully this is helpful to you to help, uh, first of all, understand how you're responding and coping with uh, the COVID-19, but also maybe giving you a better sense of the disciplines that we practice and the role of the liberal arts at a place like Bethel. So until next time, for Amy Poppinga and Joel Fredrickson, this is Chris Gertz. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.